Well, I want you to think about this morning the most embarrassing moment in your life. Hmm. What was that? When was it? For some of us, it might have been in school. I would imagine for many of us, it might have been in what I would coin and term middle school to be, which is the land of piranhas, right? Write that one down. If you have a sixth grader that just ventured into it this morning, if they haven't experienced it yet, they might. If they don't experience it in sixth grade, they will experience it in seventh grade. (laughs) If they don't experience it then, then I don't know where they're at. (laughs) The middle school is the land of piranhas. It's where you get eaten alive or close eaten alive. You get eaten quite a bit, bit quite a bit. And the whole goal a lot of times is just to get out. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right. Well, when I was in middle school, the most embarrassing moment happened. Um, I had just entered seventh grade at Dan F. Long uh, Junior High School just down the street here. And it was just, I think, a week or so into the new year, and I played soccer at the time, and and I was at my soccer practice one night, and I was one of those guys, I loved to head the ball. Um, If I scored, it was usually with my head. Um, I was just, I loved to head the ball, and so I would dive a lot and head, and I would even like do these diving headers that were like close to the ground, and so I would even do that in practice, and so one day at practice, I, I dove for a ball, and I headed it, and... One of my teammates, his cleats went right up my nose. And it was just like this massive collision. Yeah, the ooh and the all. It was quite that. It was gruesome. And I did score, though, so we got to be excited about that. But my face after that took on quite um, a discouraging look, to say the least. Um, I continued to practice, which was very interesting. And my mom loved that as I walked in the house and looked at my dad and like, how come you're not at the hospital yet? Uh, we eventually got there, and I remember that night them saying, yeah, your, your nose is broken. I'm not sure what we can do for you, though, just to tell you it, it's broken. Um, and then for the next two weeks, I remember as a seventh grader, my first year in the junior high, going to school, looking like the character from the 1985 movie with Cher, Cher Mask. Do you remember that? Yeah, I don't want to knock on that, but that's what I kind of looked like for a while. It wasn't long shape, but it was just like, like, I feel like I had like an extra 10 pounds on my head from swelling and bruising. It was bad. And so here I was, a seventh grader. I would go to the cafeteria with my shake because I couldn't eat. So I would drink out of this, you know, that's when shakes and smoothies weren't cool. I know it's cool today. I don't know if they're doing it on the campus, but we all do that as adults now. We love to smoothie it up. But... I was this guy, had that, and then not to mention, it was class pictures. And I'm thinking to myself, no way, why? Why? And I remember in my head, my class picture, I'm not too sure why my mom allowed me to do that, but it happened, and I just have that image in my head of this interesting-looking Jerry. <laughs> that was embarrassing. It was weird. I mean, middle school enough, and then going with that, it was tough. I want to step back this morning and and think about the gospel. Uh, For some of us, we have experienced shaming because of the gospel. But Paul says here in his word that I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see, living out the gospel will bring shaming. It will. But the question is, are we embarrassed? Are we ashamed? 
how we re- will we respond to that shaming that comes when we have an opportunity to live out and speak of the gospel? Because shaming will come, but what, how will we respond? Will we say like Paul, I'm unashamed of the gospel? Now, with that kind of as the key phrase this morning, I want us to think about why can Paul say that? Why can Paul be so bold to say, I'm unashamed of the gospel? What is it in the gospel that causes him to live so boldly? I want us to see that. And so we're going to look at that in 14, 15, 16, and 17 this morning there in Romans 1. And so I want us to look at that. And then we're kind of going to split the morning in half. After we look at that, we're going to kind of step back and say, okay, what are two things that, that war against a bold life lived in the gospel? What are those two things that, that war against us and even can, can kind of creep in, even in Christians, that we've got to be aware of so that we don't shrink back? but instead we live unashamedly and stand, daily get our feeding, daily live on the gospel. And so let's do that this morning. Let's look at Romans chapter one. Look at verse 14. Paul begins here. Stephen read it very passionately. I want us to look at it. And so kind of the first half, let's, let's, first, let's be students a little bit. And the second half, let's just kind of kick back and, and kind of re- receive and, and hear this morning. So look at verse 14. He says, I am under obligation. That's an interesting word. Paul feels like I have a responsibility. As one who has followed Christ, as one who is an apostle of Jesus Christ, I am under obligation. I have a responsibility to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There's some interesting phrases there. He says, for my part. Paul sees, I have a part in this. I have a role in this. We all have roles in the kingdom to declare the gospel. It may be in different ways to different people at different times, but we all have been called to be the light of the world and to influence people with the gospel. And so Paul says here, so for my part, I eagerly preach the gospel. Let's step back and think about that for a second. Do we have such eagerness do we have such an eagerness to, to speak of the gospel, to enter spiritual conversations? Maybe we're building relationships with people and, and we're being active about that, but, but what about eagerly bringing in the gospel and eagerly turning the corner to a spiritual conversation? And Paul says, I, I eagerly want to go preach in Rome the gospel. Paul longed to visit Rome. He was prevented on many times of, of doing so, and that's why we have this great letter of Romans as a result. And he eagerly wanted to go and declare the gospel. His preaching stirred up people. It stirred people up. He didn't step back and make the gospel unoffensive, because the gospel is offensive. He didn't make the gospel something that was popular and, and toned it down. He shared it boldly and passionately. He shared it as the only truth to bank everything on because he knew that was true. And when he did, it didn't sit well with people. It didn't sit well with people. That's why Paul says what he does next. He says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to bring everyone who believes first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. You think about Paul, he was imprisoned. He was chased out of a city, he was smuggled out of another city, he was laughed at many times, he was regarded as a fool, he was even stoned. 
He eventually would be martyred. But even in all of this, he will say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel will bring shaming. It will bring ridicule. It will bring criticism. It will even bring physical persecution, even in America. It will come. Shaming of all types will happen. Paul faced it. He knew it would come. But he did what he despised, that shame. And as you hear that phrase this morning, who does that make you think of? Who else despised shame? Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, the Bible tells us, who for the joy set before him, Jesus did. He endured the cross. He despised shame. He sat down the right hand of the Father in the throne of glory. You see, we will be shamed for believing the gospel. We will be shamed for living out the gospel unashamedly because of what it is and what it does for you and I. But we can believe this, that one day we will be vindicated. Everything will be made right. And we can believe that. And so what is it about the gospel? Why did Paul so unashamedly live it out, even in the midst of being shamed so much? And I pray this is encouragement for you and I this morning, but let's think about that why. First of all, I want us just to hear what, what is the gospel, kind of in story form, because it is a story. It's a story of good news. It's a story of reality where you and I get to invited into the story, and we get to live it out. And so what is it? Think about the gospel for a second. We talked about it last week, of course, but when we think about it, the gospel is this whole story. The Bible tells it from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story that God created all things for his glory. He made you and I the pinnacle of his creation. Man stumbled and fell, obviously, in the garden. Inherited into this world was sin, was the curse of man, death, and separation from God, and separation from God forever. But God did something. He took a family. We see it in Genesis 12. He takes a family. He takes Abraham. And he takes this family and he calls them out. And from that family, he creates a nation. He calls them Israel. He calls this nation now to, to live for him and to literally be his witnessing people to the world of who he is, to declare who he is. And he gives them a law. He gives them commands to live by. And by obeying this law, they would receive the blessings of God. They were to be his people. But they stepped out of God's ways. They stepped away from him. They failed to follow him and obey his commands and didn't, therefore did not receive his blessings. And they turned their back on God. In spite of his patience, in spite of his persistent grace, they continued to walk away from him century after century as his covenant people. And they turned from him. Hopelessness covered the earth, brokenness in the human race. But God did something in the person of Jesus Christ. He came in flesh, in time and space, into history. And Jesus came in the form of God as man, perfectly lived out his life here on earth without sin. He went to the cross, obedient to the Father's will. He was raised from the dead, as we sung about just a few minutes ago. And it was revealed that he was truly the Son of God as he came to fulfill the law with his perfect life. He offered a final sacrifice, taking the curse that you and I deserved upon himself, and he secured the promised blessing for us by grace, by nothing that we have done, but by grace alone. And those who believe in him are united with him, and despite of our sin, those people are changed. They're now the children of God. 
And instead of this single nation state, you now have this new international multi-ethnic fellowship of believers in every nation and culture. It's represented here this morning. It's represented across the world this morning as people gather together declaring the name of Jesus. And so the gospel, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story, but Paul says, listen to what's in that story. Listen to the reality of this story. He says in verse 16 that the gospel, as Paul says, is the power of God for salvation, meaning the gospel is effective to change anyone's life, anyone's life, anyone's. And so what does salvation mean? Salvation means you're rescued. It's like our kids this morning and last week. They're talking about um, the, the Passover, and this morning they're talking about uh, the, the, the Red Sea of God rescuing the Israelites. And so as you go home this morning, you get to say, hey, I talked about a rescue too. You talked about a rescue there in Exodus. We talked about a rescue too. Salvation is God rescuing you and I from spiritual lostness to now having a relationship with God, from the wrath of God, to now being a friend of God, from spiritual ignorance, to now understanding and getting it why I was made and why God created me, is to live for him, and now I have hope. He's rescued us from self-indulgence, where it's all about me and just really this life that really amounts just to mere survival and just mere existence. Now I live for something much more than that. It's for Christ. And it's even the great rescue from the darkness of other world religions, and it can happen. Don't lose hope in that, it can happen. And so the power of God for salvation, what kind of, kind of power are we talking about? The kind of power we sung about this morning, the same power that rose Christ from the dead can change you and I. And so you might be in here this morning, you might be thinking, Jerry, okay, I, I'm a believer, I hear this, I believe in the gospel, but I've got some things in my life that I just cannot overcome. I've got some habits that, man, I just cannot break. I want you to hear this text this morning. Live in the gospel. Never get, think, well, I'm above the gospel. It got me into salvation, but now I don't know what to do. But hear what the text says. It is the power of God for you even now. It, it, it doesn't ever stop being the power of God. It continues and continues and continues to rescue us and to save us and to release us from things. And so we daily get our living on this. So don't move away from this just thinking, well, it got me in the door. No, it didn't just get you in the door. It sustains you. And you live on it. You feed on it. You walk on it. And you live it out because of the power of God. Nothing in us whatsoever but everything that he grants and everything he gives by his power. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 3, it's nothing you and I can do, but it's simply the power of God. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Listen to what he says. God did. God did it. God did it. He did it, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. So I want you to hear that this morning. God did it. God did it by his power. You want to share the gospel with somebody with one verse? Go to Romans 8.3 and just say, God did. He did it. You can stop. You can stop attempting. You can stop trying. God did it, and here's what he did. He sent his son, and by his power, we are saved. Now, who? It says, to everyone who believes. It's this, this continuous action. Those who come to faith, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And what do we do? We believe. We rely on. We, we trust. We have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, by grace, we've been saved through faith. 
and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is this great gift that God gives to you and I so that we can understand the gospel, the truth about Christ. We can embrace the truthfulness of God and the gospel. And as we do, we, we feel the sorrow over our sin, understanding who God is and who we're not and how great his grace is. And it fills us with joy. And we submit our will to Christ and we seek to live for him. And as a result, you have this life that has changed, that lives in obedience to him. That's what faith is. It's this great gift that God gives. And who's the gospel for? It's for everyone, the Jew first and then the Greek. Yeah, God came to the Jews. We heard just a few minutes ago, he came to them first. Jesus went to the Jews first in his ministry. There would be to be this witnessing people and then he went to the Greeks. Simply put, we could say a lot about that, but simply put, the gospel's for everyone. And in our world today, we have a lot of even anti-Semitism that is raising up. And there's no room for that. All are invited to the gospel. All, Jew and Greek, non-Jews as well, everyone. And then Paul says this, look at verse 17. He says, for in it, so this is a great little text here. You got verse 16, you got verse 17. He says, for in it, what is it? It's the gospel. You go back up to 16, he's picking up what he just talked about. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made known, it's made clear, it's made to understand from faith to faith. So for everyone who believes, the righteousness of God is made known. And he says, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. What, what does that mean? I think two things. First of all, this. It reveals to us the righteousness of God himself, that he is right. He is righteous. He is holy. He is holy in all his ways. There is nothing in him that, that is wrong. On his own, he is righteous. He's the only one that can say that. He is righteous. And so the gospel declares that. And as a result, when we are made aware of who he is, then we are made aware of who we are, that we are not right. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the standard, the glory of God of who he is and his righteousness. Think about this. This week I was having coffee with Ji Young, our Korean pastor at uh, Nanum Church that meets here. I love him to death. And a dear friend for over 10 years now, and he was sharing a story this, this summer as him and his wife were traveling back from the north, um, back down here to Dallas. They were on the plane, and they saw this, this rainbow from way up in the sky. They saw a rainbow. I, I don't know, has anyone ever experienced a rainbow from the view of a plane? Anyone? One? Come on. Trudy, that, that must have been amazing. That must be a sight. Yeah, also, uh, Kyle, you got, you got to see it too? Isn't that cool? That, that would be amazing. So you would think, I'd, I'd be like, oh man, wow. I mean, I get excited just seeing the top of the clouds. I'm thinking that's cool. But a rainbow from a plane's view. And so his wife turns to him after seeing this in tears, just, just tears, just crying. And so Ji Young asked her, said, so what's, what's wrong? And listen to what she said. And I thought this was just astounding. She said, we are sinful. We are sinful. You know, you may be thinking, she'd go on about how beautiful it was, and how beautiful it was, but what she saw was the beauty of God in his creation in an amazing way, and all she could think about is, wow, who she is not, and how sinful she is. And see, that's what is revealed in the gospel, the righteousness of God. We see God for who he is, and then we realize our great need because who we are not. 
It also reveals another side of the righteousness of God. It reveals that we can receive his righteousness. And so we can get righteousness from him so that we can be right with God. And how does that happen? Through faith. I think of faith as, as kind of like this gift. It's a, it's a channel to us where God through it imputes to us, he gives to us his righteousness. It's by nothing we do, it's simply by faith that he is granted to us by his grace where we now believe and understand who he is and we trust in him and he grants to us the righteousness of God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, became sin on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. And that's what happens when we trust in Christ. And so the righteousness of God is made known. It's revealed. And then he says, quoting Habakkuk 2.4 at the end of verse 17, he points something out. He says, from faith to faith, that it's by faith we receive this righteousness, and it's by faith that we continue in this righteousness. It's an enduring faith. It's not just this entry door faith. It is life of living in faith. And so Paul says, that's why I'm not ashamed. That's why I'm not ashamed. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so that's why Paul can boldly say, I'm unashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God to deliver people and to make them right with him. Now there's two warring things um, in Paul's day and in our day as well that I want us to see. And, and I want to just take the last remainder of time to, to show you this because it's in Paul's culture, it's in our culture in many different ways and we've got to be aware that it doesn't seep into our mind or that maybe we've carried something into belief in Christ from an old tradition or something back in, in our growing up that has stayed with us. And so we've got to be aware of that and to make sure that we don't think that way. And there's two things. The first one's kind of a big word, and I want to break it up for you uh, because that's kind of how I like it is I, I want to get down to the ground level and make sure I get it. The first one is a big word. It, it, it's, it's the first mindset. It's called antinomianism. And, and it's simply this. Anti means against. We get that. Um, namas is, is the word law. And so it simply means this, anti-law. So it's anti-commands. It's anti-obedience. Anti, um, so it's antinomianism. The second one is called legalism. And we're more familiar with that one. And we get that one maybe a little bit more. But both these mindsets were in Paul's day. And we see that they both stem from the garden, from the lie of the enemy, that we cannot trust God and that he can truly, um, cannot be believed to be good or gracious. And so these two mindsets come from that lie. Uh, they're, they're like two un, uh, identical twins in the same womb, and, and they stem from that lie in the garden. And so Paul addresses both, and he says that the wrath of God is revealed against both of those. And so here he says in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, but here down in verse 18, the next verse there, he says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against ungodliness, those who suppress the truth. And so it's against these two mindsets that I want you here this morning that we must be aware of. That's in our day, just as in Paul's, 
but also we've got to be careful and guard against as well. So I want to show you this just real simply. I'm going to read some verses. I'm not going to expose them all, um, but I want to read them to you so you just kind of get a feel of it and then just make some quick notes before we close. But look at verse 18, and I'm going to read down to 23. And so just kind of relax here, kind of read these texts and just kind of hear what's happening. It, it paints kind of the culture of Paul's day and definitely in our day of what's going on even in our nation. So listen, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident with them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so here Paul is saying that the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness, against unrighteousness, against those who suppress the truth of God. And no doubt we see that today. We see it today. The question is, how do we see the wrath of God being revealed against those who oppose him, who do not worship him, who do not devote their life to him, to those who hold up other philosophies and other truths as more wise than the gospel, as Paul says was happening in his day? How is the wrath of God being revealed? Sure, we could say, well, the wrath of God is being revealed uh, by the consequences of sin. That's definitely true. But listen to how it's being revealed, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over, key phrase, God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over, again that phrase, to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burdened their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so how is the wrath of God being revealed according to what Paul is saying? It's the wrath of abandonment. You might be thinking, man, that's a, that's a harsh word. See, the wrath of God is his righteous anger toward men. And so God's anger here is abandonment. What does that mean? Does it mean that they, they can't ever turn back to him and repent? No, that's not what it means. They, they can. The door's open. But here's the deal. It says God gave them over. Think of it this way. The floodgates have been let down. The restraints of God's grace, his boundaries of grace, been done away with. The restraints are gone. And so his wrath is seen here by basically saying to those who are living in ungodliness, suppressing the truth, seeing other philosophies and other ways as wiser, seeing the advancement in our day as the Bible says, this is sin, this is wrong, this is wrong. When our culture sees it as advancing with the times, here's what God says. Go ahead, have a feeding fest. Where people see it as, well, this is liberating and this is freedom. It's not. It's not. 
And so God gives them over. And the restraints are gone. They're gone. So much so, look at verse 28. As just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, they're slanderers, they're haters of God, they're insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. We saw that this week in Virginia. Inventors of evil, a new way of doing evil. Disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same thing, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. No doubt we're seeing the wrath of God in our nation. And that's what it is. We can't be blinded by that. God puts the restraints down. And so what does he call the church to do? To live like Paul did, unashamedly, unashamedly. And so what we see is a culture that is indifferent to God, even though they they should know him by the rainbow in the sky, like Ji Young's wife in the plane. They they should know him by, by just everything around us, the beauty of his creation. They fail to recognize him as God. And so we live in that culture, and, and really what I would say is kind of a subculture of that is this antinomianism thinking, this anti-law thinking, which believes God to be ungenerous. We saw this last week. He's hard. Um, his commands, his law cannot be seen as beneficial to us, but rather they're a burden, and so we refuse his law. We refuse his commands. But there's an underlining thought to this, and we see it in our day-to-day, and we've got to be careful it doesn't creep in uh, to the church, it doesn't creep into our life, where it makes us think, but I'm still okay with God. It's a conversation I had last year with somebody. As we're talking about the gospel, and and they say, hey, I'm I'm okay with God. I'm, I'm good with God. I've trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I just don't want his supervision. It was present in Paul's day. It's present in ours. So the commands of God, the need to obey him, is refused. It's the thought that regardless of my record, he doesn't mind how morally or immorally I live now. It's the attitude that God so accepts me as I am, he only wants me to be myself. So it's even the thought, even I can be a Christian, I can be right with God, yet I can continue to live in my sin and disobedience because of who I am and God wants me to be myself. That's the thinking. But that's not the gospel. The gospel comes in and says, you're accepted not because of who you are, but you're accepted because of who Christ is. And now you're not continued to live the life you've, you've lived, and it's not just this, okay, you're safe with God now, you can go and keep doing this. No, it's now I live a life that resembles him. And, and I see his commands and even his law as gracious things to me, not as a burden and not something to be refused. The second thing, and we'll go a little quicker on this one, is legalism. And we see it. It's, it's a warring mindset. Paul saw it. Look at Romans 2, 1 through 4. Again, I'll just read a, a section here. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. So he goes talking to these Greek pagan um, Gentiles here that, that 
anti-law, and now he comes to Jews who are not anti-law, but they take it real far. Look what he does here. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And so there in verse four, there's, there's hope for, for both these mindsets, right? That God is patient, he is kind. Even though he lets the restraints down with the people who are anti-law, and, but even to the legalist here, he says, God is kind, God is patient. And his kindness though is to lead to repentance, lead to change. But what did the Jews struggle with and what do some still struggle with today? We all could probably stand in that line and say, hey, I, I struggle. It's this idea of mere external righteousness but internal self-righteousness. You see, they might not have done the evil practices that some of these Gentiles had done back in chapter one, but they look at them and they hold judgment on those, but yet they have evil ways in their own life. They have evil hearts. <laughs> they might look good on the outside, but they're dark on the inside. They may say, well, I don't do that, and I'm not that bad. But God's not looking at that. God's looking at the heart, not just what is done on the outside. And they had this attitude, well, they're going to be judged. And they thought to themselves, but we won't because we're the Jews. And they had this superiority this nationalism in their thinking. They thought they were above everybody else. And they thought they had this special connection. When God looks at them and says, your heart is just as dark. And look what he says in Romans 2, and I think this just sums it up. Verse 28, he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, and this is huge. When you think back to what Paul says, he says the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. This verse right here is huge. He says that he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but it is from God. You see, legal, legalism is far more than the belief that I can just simply be saved by good works. But here's what legalism believes. It believes that I have to pry blessing out of God's begrudging, unwilling fingers with all sorts of performances or observances, even my, my church going or, or, or my doing of good works becomes this thing as I'm trying to pry things out of God's hands. God is seen as kind of like this magnified policeman who gives this law and he wants to destroy us and destroy our joy. So obeying God becomes this thing to get things from God instead of getting God. To get things from God instead of trying to resemble him and delight in him as we're commanded to do. And so legalists, what do we do? We, we assume the burden of law keeping wearily to be right with God, while those who are anti-law refuse it all together and just say, I'm okay. 
because I am who I am. And God's okay with that. Both beliefs do, need, do not see God for who he truly is. They, they fail to see the law. They fail to see the gospel as an extension of God's grace. And Paul says this a, a, a result. He says the condition of man in Romans 3, 10, 11, he says, therefore, none are righteous. None understand. None are good. So may we, like Paul, Philippians 3, 9, as he says, may we be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So there is a cure. There's a cure for, for those who maybe have the thought of antinomianism, the anti-law of, of saying, I, I am who I am and I'll just be this way and God's okay with that. There's a cure for that. There's a cure for the legalist who says, I've got to pry blessing out of God's hands and I just got to do all these good things and, and hopefully in the end, my good outweighs the bad. There's a cure for that thinking and there's a cure for the condition of all man. And it's the gospel. It's the power of God to deliver and to rescue people from the bondage of such thinking, from the bondage of such sin, from the bondage of death, and that through faith we can be made right by God. It's the grace of God. And so do we believe that this morning? Have we experienced that rescue? Have you ever, maybe this morning, considered your need for that rescue? Now, I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you, and you never have, maybe you never thought about that. Maybe you hear some of these things this morning and you start thinking in your mind, wow, man, I'm prone to that. Or, or maybe, man, that's right where I'm at. And I want to encourage you, man, consider Jesus this morning and what God did through him for you by grace. You don't have to keep a tally sheet anymore. You don't have to walk around in fear. You don't have to walk away in bondage to whatever sin and habit. But God can change you by his power. And he can rescue you. And he can give you a new life in him. We as believers also, we've got to be on guard. We've got to be careful not to let such mindsets creep in. And that's why Paul says, and as we close, John, if you want to come up, 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to hear this. I, I love this text. Verse one and two, Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also, he says, you received, and then he says, which also you stand, by which also you're being saved, and so all these things are this continual action, and also if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, and so what is he saying here? Stand. You received it, continue to feed on it daily. Stand in it, get your living from it, and live according to the gospel. That's why Paul can say, I'm unashamed. When temptation comes, when shaming comes, I continue to go back to the gospel. And I look at what Christ did for me. And I realize for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I realize that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer do the living, but Christ does the living through me. The one who loved me and gave his life for me. That's where I get my life from. That's where I get my living from daily. That's why you can say I'm unashamed.
And so I pray today we would unashamedly live out the gospel and believe in what Christ has done for us. So we close today. Um, we're going to come and celebrate what we've just talked about through communion. So we take the cup as we take the bread. So remember what Jesus has done for us and celebrate the glorious gospel this morning. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, we want you to consider what you've heard today. And for believers, we invite you to come and take of the meal today as we remember Christ and his body and his blood. Let me pray.